Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Season two of The Collective Tap is called Well to Table. It focuses on the role that water plays in the production of food and beverages in Indiana, everything from the field to the bottle. Join us as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, bring you conversations with the agricultural community in Indiana, commercial producers like Coca-Cola Consolidated and Ingredion, and the people behind some of our homegrown beer and spirits. In part two of this episode, we talk with Ben Wicker, the executive director of the Indiana Agricultural Nutrient Alliance, and Mike Starkey, owner of Starkey Farms. We discuss the relationship between agricultural nutrients and water quality, the benefits of soil health practices, and the challenges of implementing those practices across more farm acreage. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Ben Wicker from the Indiana Agricultural Nutrient Alliance. Ben talks about the efforts to control nutrient pollution to our waterways, why farmers need evidence to change, and what he sees for the future of Indiana agriculture. My name is Ben Wicker. I'm the executive director of the Indiana Agriculture Nutrient Alliance. Uh, I'm also a trained agronomist and certified crop advisor, as well as a farmer. Can you explain to us what the Indiana Agriculture Nutrient Alliance is? The Indiana Agriculture Nutrient Alliance, or IANA, as we, we try to shorten it because it is a, it is a mouthful, um, is a broad collaboration of basically all the major ag, farm, and commodity organizations, um, the conservation agencies and partners, uh, and other NGO partners that have all come together to set some shared goals, share in some consistent and, and shared messaging, and really work towards helping farmers in Indiana stay at the forefront of nutrient management and soil health practices that are going to improve or maintain their farm's viability but then also ultimately lead to reductions of nutrient loss to water. Can you explain what nutrients are in the context of agriculture? When we talk about nutrients in the, the, farm, uh, in the farm sense or, or within agriculture, what we're really talking about are those fertilizers, manures, and contributions from the soil that are essential to soil health and plant growth. And nutrients and how farmers look at that are as things that are essential to them. And so in order to optimize and be as efficient and sustainable as possible, to, to maximize production on the landscape or things that are essential to them, also hugely important in the uh, economic sense as well. And so, it tends to represent one of the largest crop input expenses a farmer may have because of their importance to making sure they can uh, maintain that crop production. We've learned a lot about how fertilizers and nutrients that farmers are adding are ending up in our waterways and contributing to negative impacts. Can you talk a little bit about 
how those nutrients end up in our water and what they do when they get there. One of the biggest challenges that a farmer faces and what really complicates, I guess, this from a farmer perspective as far as how they work with growing a productive crop while reducing that loss to nutrients. And generally, we're talking about nitrogen and phosphorus as being the two major components of water quality challenges, but also the two nutrients that are most essential to plant growth. The challenge that you have at the farm landscape is really balancing how those nutrients are both taken up by the plant, but then also how those are then lost to water. And, and the challenge that we have when it comes to both uh, losses of nitrogen and phosphorus. So in order for the crop to take them up, they have to be dissolved in water. When you have a nutrient-rich water leaving, leaving a landscape, then that can present those nutrient challenges. How that impacts water quality and where that, um, where that happens is actually the, the, the same positive thing that's happening on the farm landscape, right? So we have nutrient-rich water that's feeding those plants. You know, think about your, your miracle grow, right, on, uh, on, your, on, your, on your garden plant. It's, it's making it grow tall and green and everything else. That happening on the, on the landscape, you get the exact same thing that happens in water. You have nutrient-rich water then, and that promotes, you know, in the water, growth of algae. So nutrients are just really good at growing things. Sure. So if you have nutrient-rich water, you're going to grow algae. Um, and then that just can, you know, and that happens naturally, right, in all systems. But then when that system gets, you know, out of balance um, in that way, you know, the excess algae then has interactions in with the oxygen in the water, which then can impact everything. And then that's really where you see these, these water quality challenges. Yeah, I was reading some about um, the Gulf of Mexico on your website, actually, about how nutrients that end up in water in Indiana end up growing algae in the Gulf of Mexico. Like, that's wild to me. And that's that's hard for everyone, right, yeah. to imagine. I mean, where I sit on my farm, you know, how many thousands of miles away from the Gulf of Mexico, about 80% of the state of Indiana drains towards that eventually, you know, most through the, the White or the Wabash and tributaries going on. But eventually, you know, it can all wind up in that, that system. That's part of the challenge, too, on a, on a farm landscape is where you maybe have small losses, right, mm -hmm. on each field, but then you get that aggregating effect over time. And, and that just adds to the complexity, right, right. Of, of addressing this challenge. And on the note of addressing the challenge, what sorts of best practices does IANA advocate for or support? When it comes to managing nutrients in the field or managing fertilizers and manure applications, right, that are essential to that plant growth and, and being as, you know, economically viable and, and honestly as sustainable as possible on our, on our farms, we really adhere to, to two main frameworks. And so that is the four R's of nutrient management. And the, the four R's of nutrient management is really just this concept or idea of making sure when you're applying a nutrient onto the field that you are using the right source at the right rate at the right time in the right place. And we pair that with the concept of soil health, which is really focused on 
growing more things in the soil, maintaining that soil cover, encouraging that microbiological growth and activity that you see in the soil. And we really feel like when it comes to farmers managing this in the field, those two theories, those two practices are what is going to really drive and get towards that goal that we have as you know, a broad collaboration of farmers, conservationists, and others, but then also being able to really intensely and, and more effectively manage those nutrients and reduce that risk of loss that we're going to have the, to the water. You mentioned the many partners that you work with. How do you balance those for-profit interests, the economic interests, with more like non-profit interests, like public wanting to have good quality water? How do you balance those two interests, especially if they come into conflict? One of the biggest places we can find common ground, right, between maintaining profitable farms and making sure that a farm is able to remain viable and make a living versus, not versus, but in addition to protecting water quality is around this idea that nutrients are expensive and they're a significant cost to the farmer. And so any place a farm can gain efficiency in how they use those nutrients on their farm and be able to hold more of that nitrogen and phosphorus and you know soil in place on their farm is going to have huge economic impacts to them because it's going to be able, allow them to reduce cost, produce more on each acre that they farm, but then also have that co-benefit, right, of keeping those nutrients out of the water and then leading to, you know, progressive nutrient reductions to the water as well. I want to underline what you just said with something, I can't remember where on your website it said this, but positively change individuals' behavior through understanding their motivations. I've been fortunate that I've had the opportunity to see this from both the, the lens and the view of a farmer as well as from the conservation point of view. And there's tremendous opportunity right there in that space in that you may care more about water quality and what happens downstream, whereas a farmer may care more about what's happening in the field or, you know, to their the family farm. And a lot of times, part of the challenge is, is we talk about those two things in different ways when really we're talking about the same thing. And I think there's tremendous opportunity for us to understand, whereas you're saying nutrient loss, I may be saying as a farmer, I want to be more efficient with my nutrient use. And the end result is the same. And we both need to make sure that we're able to recognize and take credit, right, for the gains that we're, that we're making there. What has the reaction been from the farming community when you've approached them with these ideas? And also, what has the reaction been from conservationists when you approach them? I mean, it feels like there sometimes has been a really adversarial relationship there where they're both kind of blaming each other for different things. And like what you're saying sounds to me like a very win-win proposal. So I think you're right that broadly, there maybe is a history, right, of distrust. And I hate to divide people into camps, right? right. But, but <laughs> between, you know, farmer and conservationist, we're really fortunate here in Indiana that we have a long-standing history of this cooperation and collaboration, even predating the, the formation of IANA and, you know, this really kind of formalized effort working towards these goals. 
many of the same partners have been working together for several years prior to this on, okay, how can we address these challenges? How can we work together on this and find those win-win situations? Out on the landscape, what I find is when you're able to cast this in the light in the language that each party can understand, a farmer maybe isn't thinking about the adoption of a new practice, right, in terms of what is the impact to this to water quality. But what they are interested in is how can I reduce my fertilizer bill? How can I grow more bushels using the same? How can I you know, be more efficient on my farm? When you cast things in that light and you show where there's that co-benefit, that, that co-win, they become a lot more receptive. Now, actually changing practices, you have to be very patient. And you have to be very strategic, I think, in how you, um, how you approach and how you position that to a farmer. I feel comfortable saying that every farm in Indiana has arrived at how they do things and the practices that they have chosen to implement for very specific reasons, addressing a very specific challenge that they had at that time. Generally speaking, most farmers' understanding of what they need to manage and what they need to be addressing, those systems are set up in a way that they work and they're effective for them. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. <laughs> <Sure>. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Anytime you're going to adopt a new practice, whether it's something related to water quality to even changing the, the brand or the variety or the type of seed that I'm going to plant, a farmer is automatically assuming a lot of risk. And so you're always going to have that moment of hesitation amongst any farmer when you ask them to do something different. What they all need, any farmer, myself included, needs in order to make those practice changes is evidence, right? That this is going to be better than what it is I'm doing already. And so specifically, when it comes to the practices we talk about, whether it's for our nutrient management practices that relate to changing the type of fertilizer you apply or how you apply it or when you apply it, we need to make sure and we have to have that evidence that shows this is more effective than what you're doing presently. So when we're talking about trying to enforce, or not enforce, but encourage people to change these habits, do you have any way of like keeping track of who does and um, you know, like what's the, I don't wanna say success rate, but maybe conversion rate is yeah. better? Indiana does as good a job as any state, I feel like in the country, being able to track and measure those levels of adoption through the Indiana Conservation Partnership, which is all the state, federal, and local agencies that provide conservation and other services to farmers, working together to pool resources and data um, together to count and attract those. And they produce annual reports. And the short story on those is we're making progress and we're getting better. In 2011, Indiana planted around 200,000 acres of cover crop, which is you know no small number, right? But if you consider the 10 to 11 million acres of row crop production that we have in Indiana, not a very high percentage. In 2020, we measured about 1.5 million. Just over the course of 10 years, significant increases 
in the amount of cover crop that was planted across the state, 200,000 acres, and 10 years later, 1.5. Tracking other practices like fertilizer use and fertilizer management is a little trickier. Every farm is going to do it a little differently with a little different timing, and it's also something that's very fluid and going to be very seasonal dependent. What we ask and what our goal is for Indiana farmers around nutrient management is one, know what you have. And so through that, our goal is for all Indiana farmers to be testing their soil so that they know what the nutrient levels are in that soil. So then they can make an informed decision about how I use fertilizers and manures. Right along with that then, all farmers then making sure they have a plan for how they utilize those nutrients on their farm. The challenge is, is we're dealing with mother nature and a static, you know, or a, a non-static system, right, of things changing. And so as a farmer, I may intend that, you know what, I'm going to apply my nitrogen a little bit at planting, and then I'm going to hopefully, you know, three weeks later, make a postseason application, and then it, you know, turns off and it rains for two of those, two of those three weeks, or it doesn't rain at all. And so I may have to adjust, right? And so being able to capture what's happening on that can be a real challenge. Our approach and what we're working on then is making sure that all farmers have that plan and that they're really adhering to that concept of for our nutrient management, considering source rate, time, and place when they make those fertilizer and manure applications. And a really neat program that is developed out of that is most farmers in Indiana look to a variety of sources for information and advice as far as how they make applications. And a lot of them work with consultants, certified crop advisors, and ag businesses to help them make those informed decisions. In Indiana, the Agribusiness Council of Indiana, which is the, the trade organization for many of those that work with farmers at that ag retail, ag business level, has started a 4R certification program. And it's a third party audit that goes through 31 different standards. And then from that, that's a way that we can then begin to comfortably say, okay, all farmers that are working with this particular nutrient service provider that is able to, you know, provide that recommendation advice and maybe even be making those applications, they're doing best practices, they're following it, and they're educating those, their farmers around what those best practices are as well. And out of that, we know how many acres are under that management, and then we can begin to get to this idea of how many acres are being managed for four R's versus not. What does success or the end goal look like for IANA? Well, first and foremost, success for IANA um, really revolves around some shared goals that we have set uh, amongst all the organizations, really zeroing in on practices that we know are directionally correct towards reducing that nutrient loss to water that we know will have an impact on improving Indiana's water quality, but then also being able to be practically and viably implemented on Indiana's farms. And so success at its highest level looks at us as a collaboration, being able to look back and compare where we are versus those goals and say, have we made the progress? Are farmers adopting these practices? Are they implementing these on their farm? Are you hopeful that you'll reach that idea of success? I am hopeful that we will be successful in reaching our goals, in holistically seeing farmers 
continue to innovate, and continue to learn and figure out better ways to manage nutrients on their farm that has the downstream benefits of reducing nutrient loss, but also being more efficient and more productive on their operations as well. And I think that success is really going to be built on the successes that they've been able to continuously make over the last 50 to 100 years in increasing that productivity and becoming more efficient over time and and really building off of that. And there may be a whole new set of challenges, right, that that crop up out out of everything that is done. But we're continually moving forward, we're continually making that progress, and and we're adapting um, as we go to what's laid out in front of us. Next, Mike Starkey is part of a seven-generation farming family in west-central Indiana. Starkey Farms is a leader in the kind of soil health practices that are transforming agriculture today. He talks with us about the impact those practices have on water quality and why more farmers will eventually make the change. Can you please introduce yourself? I'm Mike Starkey, Brownsburg, Indiana. Longtime farmer. Grew up on the farm. A very urban area now. Uh, northwest side of Annapolis. Farm 2,500 acres. And this is a considered a family farm. It's a seventh generation family farm now because we have all these young kids and babies growing up. And... Actually, I was not even going to become a farmer. Um, my major in college was uh, accounting and business administration. When I grew up watching my father farm, it was more of a work hard, dusty, dirty, greasy job. And that was the last thing I wanted to become. So I majored, uh, went to school to become an accountant. And uh, when I started talking to those accountants, the more I decided, you know, I don't think I really want to do this. I had a brother that farmed full-time with my, my dad, and he passed away at a young age with cancer. So to help my father out, I started helping him part-time. With that, I saw that farming was changing. It was becoming more of a business. It was not just strictly going out there and tilling the soil and throwing the seed out there and the fertilizer. It was more of how to watch your input dollars, and it's becoming a big business. We'd love to hear more about your farm and the practices that you use to address your water usage. Well, I'm considered a no-till farmer, and the reason being the to start off with is because it was one of those situations where I was not making any money farming. So I had decided to make some major changes because my yields were plateauing, but my input costs were going up. With that, I talked to some other farmers that were into no-till. No-till is where you don't till the soil. Uh, You just plant into it without tillage. And I reduced my input costs considerably by transition into no-till environment. In addition to that, we have extensive uh, soil health practices, meaning that our soil acts like a sponge. In other words, whenever we have an intense rainfall event, which we do have now. The water doesn't pond on top of the soil like it used to when my dad was farming. And the reason being is because our soil is is sort of like where you're putting a finger over a, a straw. It has tremendous air and water movement through the soil. And with that, we have a lot of oxygen. It's a biological active soil. It's a living soil. And we constantly want to feed that living soil with roots 
And not only with a cash growing crop, we also put out what you call a cover crop. I was actually putting cover crop out yesterday, the wheat that I harvested you know, last month. So there's different species of cover crops out there. The whole idea is we want to feed the soil. And in addition to what we're finding, not only we're, we're not having the soil erosion issues as we had in the past, but our water is coming out crystal clear like it's drinking water. It's interesting to hear you talk about switching to these practices from a point of view of economics. Absolutely. Our input costs, like I mentioned, has gone down dramatically, meaning that we don't have to buy the, the fertilizer like my dad did or like the people that till the soil do. Because when you till the soil, you have to constantly re have to replace that with a commercial fertilizer. In our no-till environment, our soil is providing that nutrients back to the plants. It's like all that fertilizer that my dad put in was not being used. There's a tremendous amount of phosphorus in the soil. There's a tremendous amount of nitrogen in the soil. There's a tremendous amount of potassium, so on and so forth. What we're seeing is that the soil is providing that back to us what was unused in the past. It's tough to do, but being in a no-till cover crop environment over the years, our soil is active and we're able to recover that out of the soil. And it all comes down to organic matter. Organic matter was depleted tremendously because of all the tillage that's been done in the past. I'm sure our soils around here were probably 15, 20% organic matter. But over the years with all the tillage, it brought it down to 1% to 2%. Since I've been no-tilling, we have seen our organic matter increase. Whenever we harvest a crop, we don't till the soil. Whatever the residue is, it goes back into the soil. We have active live earthworms that are out there, microbes that are out there. Again, it's a living soil, and it needs to be fed all the time with living roots. That's where we had the cover crops. As we constantly feed the soil, we are actually getting back what those microbes are providing for our crops. So therefore, a big reduction in inputs, a big reduction in not having an extra tractor or tillage tool to work the soil, a big reduction in manpower. We don't have to, uh, we can cover so many more acres with just our immediate family. We don't have to go out and hire employees. A big reduction in fuel costs, of course. Earlier, you said something about how on your father's farm, the water would pool when it rained, but that doesn't happen here. I just want to hear a little bit more about why that is and what's different. The soil in a conventional till environment, if you till it, it's, it's sort of like there's no soil structure. After a rain event, it's sort of like walking through mud. After an intense rain event on our soils, we can go out there and walk on it just like a yard without getting our feet dirty. And how's that happen? Well, our soil is absorbing this, the, the rain events and going down to our tiles. We, we have to have tiles in this area. There's, there's no ifs and buts about it. Drainage is critical. But the drainage, what my dad had, is the same as what we have now. But the tiles really weren't working because after a big rain event, the water would slowly go down. And if it would not go down in the soil, it would erode off the soil. But now our soils today, our tiles have woke up and they're actually you know, bringing down the water table that's, that's needed in order to provide us a better crop. For example, 
2012, I dug a soil pit out here at this farm right here, five, six feet deep. I wanted to see how far the, the corn roots were going down. And it was amazing how our, so, our, our corn roots were just blowing through the glacial till even because of the soil structure we have. That wouldn't have happened when my dad was farming or in a conventional tire because there's like what you call a plow pan. It's a hard area. And now with the, the roots able to go through these channels that our earthworms have made, with the oxygen that are, is going through the soil, those corn roots find water. And I did this soil pit on a Friday just to look at the, the corn roots, but then I go up there on a Sunday to, to show my wife, you know, how far these corn roots are going. And amazingly, there's a lot of water in the bottom of this pit. And that was with six weeks of 100 degree plus weather with no rain in the drought of 2012. That's the big difference because we had the advantage to farm and still manage the weather events. I'm talking about the, the rainfall events. It's all or none. So we can survive through a drought because what rain we had previously, if it starts turning dry, our corn is staying green. If we have intense rain events, it's not standing on top of the crop. It's going down into the soil. You said something interesting earlier about how the water that comes off your farm is crystal clear, look, looks like drinking water. And we learned that you've worked with researchers to study the quality of the water that comes off your farm. I would love it if you could talk a little bit about what you found. Well, I work with several partners that are involved with a um, water monitoring project that's happening on our farm. What's pretty cool about it is that they're monitoring the water before it enters the farm, and they're monitoring the water after it exits the farm. And after seven years of extensive research, what's pretty exciting is that the water exiting the farm is cleaner than when it enters our farm. Now, how's that happening? Well, again, I'm not the person that goes out there and throws a bunch of fertilizer out there on the fields if it doesn't need it. My soil is absorbing these rain events. It's not eroding off the field. We have filter strips along the stream. That's where this water monitoring project is involved with. We have year-round growing roots that are in the soil taking these rain events that we have. We do not just go out there and apply a bunch of nitrogen all at one time. We, what I call spoon feed the corn crop when it's needed. We put a little bit on at planting, we put a little bit on like when the corn's knee high, and I just finished up applying my last shot of nitrogen uh, a week and a half ago, right when it's tasseling out. So it's the spoon feeding effect of applying the nutrients, what the crop needs at certain times of the year. Not all up front. And if you do that, I mean, I can't predict this weather from one day to the next, but you're risking losing all that apply nitrogen, for example, all going down to the tile line after the first big rain event, which we have. All of this is so encouraging and exciting. Do you try to convert other farmers to your methods? And if so, what have been their reactions? Well, I'm not gonna go out there and tell other farmers what to do, but I do encourage and promote what I do and invite others if they're interested. I have a peer group that we share information with. Anybody can uh, attend. Uh, I promote and educate others. We've had workshops here in the past. There's always an interest in it, and it all comes down to if a farmer is open 
for change or not. It, it's core, sort of like a passion that I have to educate and promote what I do because it's, it's kind of like the legacy I want to leave. On this note of legacy, I'm really curious to hear what the future of farming as a whole looks like to you. Well, I, I just feel that if you're going to survive in farming, you're eventually going to have to change. I have issues where a lot of our universities are not doing that yet, meaning that they're still educating their students by doing the old way of things. And I feel that they need to be a lot more innovative in their thinking. But I do understand they're getting paid by grants and the people that pay them, they have to kind of follow what they're getting paid for. I sort of have a personal issue with that. In the future, if we're not more open-minded and innovative of what's needed out there, for one thing, I, I just feel that you're going to see a lot of farmers not be farming anymore. One positive thing I, I feel that we can uh, promote and try to educate these landowners, because two-thirds of our ground is, is rented from other landowners. They're not farmers, but they're just people that, you know, retired people have land. And so we rent our farm ground. In our state, we had a bill years ago. I was involved with the State Association of Soil and Water Conservation Districts to lobby to get a tax credit if for landowners, if they had no-till cover crop practices done on their land. With that, a landowner would say, hey, I'm going to save some money on my property taxes if this is farmed this way. I'm going to tell this farmer um, who's renting my ground, either do it that way or I'm going to find somebody else that's doing it that way. And if that happened, I almost guarantee you the farmer that was doing it the old way to keep that ground would change. So that would be a good incentive for landowners to have more acres out there by doing a, a, a no-till environment. But unfortunately, that bill didn't go through. And we have a lot of, I should say, uh, legislators that are not willing to be open enough to see that this is a positive benefit, not only for farming, but for the general public. So with that being said, I, I feel the best way to educate others is to go to the schools and educate the kids. We had some teachers out here last week, ag teachers, that are wanting to know what, time, what type of farming we're doing. And I just flat out told them, you know, if you educate the kids and let them know that this is a positive way of doing things, they'll go home and tell their parents and their parents will get excited about it because parents are the votes for these legislators. What role should regulations play in soil health and building a positive future? In Indiana, we have a lot of people that don't want any regulations. I'm not one of those. I mean, but there's quite a bit in our state. To change that, I feel, let's give them some incentives to make these changes. It's all voluntarily. Again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person that likes to be, I, I wanna improve on water quality and soil health. I wanna improve on the soil, make it better, and pass it on to the next generation. But to do that, it's all voluntarily, from one farm to the next. But if we had some incentives to make it even better, I think you would see a, a lot more of it out there. And that's where our legislators are gonna have to come through and provide that for us. What we receive from the state is actually embarrassing compared to what Illinois receives. And 
here we are, a national leader for cover crops. And it's the reason being is because we have farmers in Indiana that want to do that. But in order to expand on that, we need some support from our legislators with not only providing dollars, but to promoting that. In the future, we're not going to see regulations because that's who we are in our state. We're, we're not California. We're Red Indiana. I mean, it feels like there should be space in here somewhere to be able to say, like, this really is a win-win situation. We can have incentives. We don't have to be telling you what to do, but we can be encouraging you what to do, and we can be showing you, like, this is positive for everybody. I, I've had legislators out here. Our governor's been out here a couple times. Our lieutenant governor's been out here three times. Every person that I've had out here on the legislative side has been very positive what we do. But then they go back and nothing happens. And, and that's unfortunate. Our former Senator uh, Ben Coates has been out here. He was so excited. He's a Republican, but he's, he's not in office anymore. That's, that's the people that we need to provide the sources, the education, uh, the excitement to make it a win-win situ situation. But I kind of get frustrated where we have them out we go back thinking that we're going to get more dollars and it doesn't happen. It goes back to the general public. The general public needs to know what's going on. When I drive my farm equipment down the road here, it's not too bad at all because they want me to stay here. They wave at me, you know, they get out of my way. They come here and buy sweet corn. They appreciate it. So the more we promote and get their excitement, hopefully they can tell their legislators I'm going to vote for you because you like what Mike Starkey's farming practices are. They need to represent the constituents who are voting for them. Water is vital for bringing food and beverages to our tables, which means it is also an essential part of Indiana's economy and quality of life. Follow along this season of The Collective Tap as we dip further into the details of this important aspect of water use. In the next episode, we will take a look at the impact of livestock operations on our water supply. Later in the season, we will examine the commercial food and beverage production industry, as well as the local beer and spirit scene. Be sure to check out part one of this episode if you want to learn more about the relationship between aquaculture and water. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.